This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. Shorts! <laughs> From WNYC. See? Yes. And NPR. Hi, I'm Robert Krilwich, and this is Radio Lab, the podcast. Jed Abumrad, who's normally at my side, is still at home, eking out the very end of his paternity leave with his brand new baby. So I've been very careful not to disturb him, which means, though, I do have to find somebody else to fight with. And I did manage to get into a nice little tussle with Richard Dawkins. Uh, one of the great defenders of Charles Darwin. He's the Charles Simone Professor of Public Understanding of Science at Oxford. He also comes from a long line of combative Englishmen, including a guy who tried to burn down an Ivy League college in the United States. In fact, why don't we begin with a little biographical sketch of Richard Dawkins that I used to introduce him to an audience at the 92nd Street Y in New York City, and then we'll get on to the discussion. I told them that Dawkins' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, going back to the 1700s, was the major commander of the British forces who fought George Washington here in the American Revolution. <laughs> and it was Richard Dawkins, Dawkins' great, 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 whatever, Sir Henry Clinton, who hired Benedict Arnold to be the British spy, who almost captured West Point, which is Washington's stronghold. Didn't do it, though, because they caught the spies and so forth. It was Dawkins' great, 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 great grandfather who commanded the British occupation forces here in New York City in 1777-78, it was his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather who authorized raiding parties on a variety of seashore communities. If you live in them, please hold your fire. Egg Harbor in New Jersey, attacked by his great-great-great-grandfather. New Bedford, Massachusetts, a part of Martha's Vineyard called Vineyard Haven. Most insidiously, he okayed an attack on New Haven, Connecticut, with the plan to burn down Yale College. Uh, fortunately, his forces, as they often were, were repulsed. Ultimately, Sir Henry Clinton lost the war and went home. But Sir Henry's great-great-great-great-grandson, Richard Dawkins, has been back to America over and over and over again to do battle with more modern Americans whom he calls the most scientifically illiterate populace outside the third world. So Richard Dawkins does not mince words, and when we began our conversation, which was about evolution and Charles Darwin, he opened with a surprisingly forceful statement. As an academic scientist, I am a passionate Darwinian, believing that natural selection is, if not the only driving force in evolution, certainly the only known force capable of producing the illusion of purpose which so strikes all who contemplate nature. But at the same time as I support Darwinism as a scientist, I am a passionate anti-Darwinian when it comes to politics and how we should conduct our human affairs. So he's, he's given us something of a riddle. I mean, he loves Darwin, but he also loathes Darwin. And then for extra spice, he wants you to know that anybody who thinks there's a purpose, a reason why we live and look and behave the way we do is under a terrible illusion. There is no purpose to our existence, no reason why we're here. That's basic Darwin, he says. 
So I thought, okay, let's do the purpose thing first. The, the Darwin's theory, I think, does a very good job on because. It can tell you why something is shaped the way it is, or has the color it is, or does the function it is because, because, because. But if you step back and you ask the bigger question, what's it all for? This happens, involves your daughter. Your daughter is driving around with you, and you're looking, she sees a, she's six years old, she sees a, a field of flowers. You say to her, well, what do you think they're for? She says, well to make the world pretty and to help bees make honey for us. You think, well, I was sorry to tell her that this wasn't true. And I explained to her that the flowers are not there to make the world beautiful, and they are not there to delight bees or anything else. They're in the world to copy their DNA. This is to a six-year-old. <laughs> but essentially what you're doing there is you're addressing, you're opening the notion to her that the world is a purposeless, indifferent machine where the meaning of things is not clear if it exists at all. You found it, I think, kind of brave to say to your daughter, look, step as no, you read, not brave. step into exciting. the wind of exciting, truth. Exciting, exciting. I mean, it's a far more exciting view of flowers to understand what they're, what they're really doing. And, and a six-year-old, she had no problem understanding that. I explained it to her. <laughs> <laughs> But, but to, to come to your what, what's it for question, it, it's a, a piece of massive presumption to think that the what is for question deserves an answer. There's, there's no reason at all why something should have a for about it. If, if I said to you, what is the sun for, or what is Mount Everest for, you would say, don't be so silly, it's not, it's not, the, it's not an appropriate question. But because it's flowers, um, you you sort of feel that there ought to be a what-is-it-for question. No, actually, I think it's a harder question than that. I think human beings, I think most human beings, have some deep impulse to explain their being here, to wonder about the origins of here and the destiny of them and here. And that question, the meaning of it all, is not a silly question. It's it's not, that's not a silly question, and it has a perfectly good answer, uh, which is not an answer to be couched in the language of purpose. It's an answer to be couched in the language of scientific causation. What brought us all to be here? What is the, the explanation for our existence? That has a perfectly good scientific answer. Uh, and, and you go back in evolutionary time to the origin of life, and then you go back before the origin of life, to the origin of the world, the origin of the solar system, the origin of the universe. And that, that it becomes deeply mysterious, needless to say. It's not, a, it's not a question I could even begin to answer. And I, I don't think that at the present stage physics can either. But to the extent that there's going to be an answer, it's going to come from science. And that is a deeply satisfying kind of answer to the question, why are we here? We already have in principle the answer to that question. And it is not an answer of the form, we are here in order to achieve some purpose. It's an answer of the form, we are here because something happened which led to something else that happened, which led to something else that happened. Uh, um, are you... Uh, let me just ask you the harder question. Are, is this hard-looking, and this telling your six-year-old, this leads to this, leads to this, this kind of reductionist way of thinking about everything... Does that seem to you to be less than joyously imaginative? No, I, no. Um, I think that's kind of super romantic. Um, to, to actually understand that flowers are devices 
beautiful devices, elegant devices, which are shaped precisely to attract insects and hummingbirds uh, and bats to take pollen from one to another. That is such a mind-blowing thought compared to the tame, sort of washed-out view that flowers are just sort of nice things to have around. <laughs> um. Don't encourage him. So I lost that round, at least with the New York audience. And I know that a lot of you listening who kind of agree with those New Yorkers that, you know, this is, this is the name of the game. If, if, if you know the details, the glorious, beautiful details, that's enough. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know that for some of us, <coughs> it's not quite enough. But anyway, um, I then asked about the second proposition. I asked him, well, what does it mean when you say that you're a passionate Darwinian and at the same time a passionate anti-Darwinian. As an academic scientist, I believe that Darwinism not only is the true explanation for why evolution happened, in particular why evolution led to the spectacularly elegant, beautiful, complicated, and apparently designed structures that we see. It's therefore a a theory of immense elegance, of immense power, of immense scientific beauty. But if you try to apply the lesson of Darwinism, as the social Darwinists did, to human society, then you end up with a kind of super Thatcherism. You end up with, or or even Hitler. For example, he said, there are people who love Darwin. He mentioned the science fiction writer H.G. Wells. Wells assumed that survival of the fittest means that only the fittest and the best creatures get to survive. But Darwin didn't say that. He didn't use the phrase survival of the fittest in his book. And he didn't ever say that evolution is there to make better and better creatures. As you just heard Richard Dawkins say, evolution isn't for anything. But when H.G. Wells read Darwin, he decided Darwin was teaching us to get rid of our less fit brothers and sisters. The New Republic, where Wells outlines his Darwinian utopia, contains some blood-chilling lines, so unpleasant that I find it hard to read them aloud. Perhaps, I mean, it's such a striking thing. I'll bring myself to... It's pretty bad. Um, Sorry, I'm having trouble finding... Oh, yes, here here we are. Um, And how will the New Republic treat the inferior races? How will it deal with the black the yellow man, the Jew, those swarms of black and brown and dirty white and yellow people who do not come into the new needs of efficiency. Well, the world is a world and not a charitable institution, and I take it they will have to go. And the ethical system of these men of the new republic, the ethical system which will dominate the world state, will be shaped primarily to favor the procreation of what is fine and efficient and beautiful in humanity, beautiful and strong bodies, clear and powerful minds. And the method that nature has followed hitherto in the shaping of the world, whereby weakness was prevented from propagating weakness, is death. The men of the new republic will have an ideal that will make the killing worth the while. That was H.G. Wells in something like 1902. I forget exactly when it was published. But... um I, I understand this to mean your notion about anti-Darwinian is that in 
our brains, we have these tendencies to make war against people who are not like us, to assign different roles to men and women, to perhaps favor our biological children over stepchildren. And in our brains, we have the other places where we might make war against the tendencies that we've inherited. Yeah, I guess that. Um, I, I think that's right. I mean, you put the dilemma rather well that um, he, here we do have our, our evolved tendencies, which have these unpleasant features, and it must be in some sense elsewhere in our brain that we have the um, desire to fight them. And I think it comes after a long period of education. Uh, we have moved away from the mores of our wild ancestors, and uh, thank goodness we have. I'm not quite sure. It's a very difficult historical process to wonder quite how that's happened, but it very clearly has. I mean, that contraception in itself is good enough evidence that, um, that we do go against Darwinian principles. Um, so it can be done, and the fact that most of us spend most of our lives striving for purposes, striving for goals, which have nothing to do with propagating our selfish genes, is further evidence that it can be done. So this notion then is that we, we live in a world carved by these forces, but our job, in part, is to recognize the good from the bad, choose and fight for the good, well, as we understand th th it. This is my suggestion. I mean, obviously that's a matter of taste, whether you want to do that, but most people who live in, in civilized society do, do want to do that. And uh, I... Would, I would like to live in the sort of society which is not run on Darwinian principles while fully acknowledging that the brains and bodies that we possess were put there by Darwinian principles in the first place. You mentioned in the reading there's something about this unique gift of foresight. Now, as I understand how, how normal evolution works, is you're in a particular place, a specific environment. It gets cold, say and you got a few more feathers than the other bird, so you have that advantage of having a few more feathers. So he shivers, 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 and dies, and you go out and have a baby. Now, this idea, however, is it's based in time, in this moment. Yeah. Now, you said something about how human beings have the unique gift of foresight. How does that play well, into it? The, the, the example you give of, of the bird with the most feathers surviving and laying the most eggs, that's exactly how it would work, and there is no foresight there. But human beings can look ahead and say, well, in a few decades' time, it's going to get cold. There's an ice age forecast. So let's uh, develop some new technology that will... Coats. We could do coats. Yes. Um, that, that's foresight. And, and foresight has literally never happened before in the whole history of life. But if people with this foresight decide, okay, let's breed a a set of flying horses so that we can leave the cold places and gallop off to the warm places. At that point, is evolution, as you understand it, over? In other words, does that new ingredient, adding foresight to the mix, take away one of the essential bits of this, that somehow it happens without a plan, now there's a plan? Yeah. Um, I presume I don't need to say to this sophisticated audience that your example of the making horses that fly is a hypothetical and... and um... <laughs> Um, well, I have a horse that flies in the second <laughs> row, but okay. he's quiet at the moment. Um, yes. Um, it, it does suggest that, theoretically, in future centuries, perhaps, evolution could take an entirely new human-guided turn 
and you really could plan for the future of evolution. Well, let me ask you the tougher question. If you know and I know that we as a group, as a species, are capable of creating flying horses or whatever, does that then take us above all the other animals and above all the other plants and give us back our special place that Darwin sort of made, I thought, tumbled us from? Yes, I think that there are lots of big differences between humans and other species. There are lots of big differences between each species and each other species, but humans are especially differently different. And um, one of the respects in which that's true is exactly what you've said. I I think there are others too. But the big, big, big difference, says Professor Dawkins, and when we finished our conversation at the Y, he and his wife, the actress Lala Ward, kind of gave it a final dramatic flourish. They did a reading from his book, A Devil's Chaplain. But he insists that our great advantage as a species is we finally have the brain power to make our own future for ourselves. For good Darwinian reasons, evolution gave us a brain whose size increased to the point where it became capable of understanding its own provenance, of deploring the moral implications, and of fighting against them. Stand tall, bipedal ape. The shark may outswim you, the cheetah outrun you, the swift outfly you, the capuchin outclimb you, the elephant outpower you, the redwood outlast you. But you have the biggest gift of all, the gift of understanding the ruthlessly cruel process that gave us all existence, the gift of revulsion against its implications, the gift of foresight, something utterly foreign to the blundering, short-term ways of natural selection and the gift of internalizing the very cosmos. And speaking about gifts, when it comes to internalizing the very cosmos, we turn to the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation and to the National Science Foundation and, of course, to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Robert Krulwich. Chad will be back with me very soon, I'm thinking. (laughs) You better be. So long for now. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.